So again, I've been in this series, Unzipping the Veil of Legalism, Seeing Through the Eyes of Grace. And today I'm going to add another message to this series as I minister for a little while through a message I'm calling The Sacred Veil. How many of you know that when you look through a wedding veil, you are not able to see the bride as vividly, as sharply, as clearly as you would be able to if the bride were not wearing a veil. I mean, that's just common sense, right? Because essentially what you're doing is you're looking through a screen, a very fine mesh screen. And the truth of the matter is the bride is not able to see the guests and the bride is not able to see her groom as well from the inside out, the eyes that she has looking through the veil because a veil does not let as much light in as if you lifted the veil. Does that make sense so far? And so it is with legalism. The more legalism that a believer veils themselves with, the more challenging, the more difficult, the harder it will become for them to see the Father and for them to see the Son, Jesus Christ, in all of their loveliness. If you can imagine yourself standing looking through a screen, which we've all done, whether it be a screen door or a window, Again, because of all the fine mesh wires there, it only allows a certain amount of light to come through. We don't think anything about looking through a screen. But now I want you to imagine taking a second screen and putting it in front of the first screen. It's going to let less light in. The holes are going to become smaller because some are going to overlap. Now take a third screen and put it in front of the second screen and a fourth screen. I don't know how many screens you would have to go, but I would say it would be less than 100 and you would not be able to see through that screen whatsoever. And so this is what happens with believers, with the church, whatever it may be. We've been very good at putting screens in front of people because we feel like it's our responsibility to protect them somehow. Eventually, if you put enough screens in front of one of the other, you would not be able to see at all. And so as I was considering this message, I started to call it the sacred screen. And then I thought, well, I entertained the sacred wall or the sacred fence. And I finally ended at the sacred veil. I want to ask you a question this morning. What do veils and screens Walls and fences have in common. Think about it for a second. What is the common denominator of veils and screens, walls and fences? The common denominator is that they are all exterior barriers. Barriers that at one time separated the Jew from the Gentile, the lost from the saved, the sinner from the saint. Barriers that at one time separated the circumcised from the uncircumcised. Barriers that separated the old covenant from the new covenant and unfortunately still do to this day. People don't understand. We've moved along. Jesus' death changed everything. They still have a barrier put up so that they are not able to see the lovely bride of Christ and Christ himself as well. Barriers continue to separate denomination from denomination. We see that all the time. So veils and screens, walls and fences, what they do is they hide the bride's ability to be able to see her groom 
in all of His goodness, in all of His glory. They hide the ability to see the groom's heart. You see, if there was a wall that was 10 foot tall and I was on one side and one of you was on the other side, I would not know who's there until you start talking. Would you agree with that? And if you know enough people, that voice might sound familiar and you go, oh, I know that voice. I know that voice. And eventually, if you did that enough times, you'd have to give up. And then when they walked around the corner, you go, boy, I knew that was you. Wouldn't you do that? Something like that. But you can see how something as simple as a wall can distort the bigger picture, right? And so what I want us to see through the message today is this. The veil of legalism has been lifted and the bride has been kissed with abundant life. The life that has graced us with faith and glory and love and hope and fullness of joy, regardless, come on now, regardless of our circumstances and regardless of our behavior. Now, that message alone is so freeing. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, we find these words. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, so that no man can boast. For we are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, let me just stop here for a second, because that is a mouthful for me. That's an earful for you. That's a heartful for us, isn't it? I think sometimes we read something that has such a simplicity to it. Such a common thing that we've seen and heard so many times that we don't take time like a juice extractor to separate the pulp from the juice. We don't take time to really extract the nutrients out of there. And I can't say that I can tell you anything about these scriptures that you wouldn't already know, but let's refresh our hearts again one time. It says, for by grace are you saved. For by grace. If I were to ask you, what does grace mean? We'd be all over the board. I think we'd have some common things that we would say, but we'd be all over the board. Some people might even have a hard time defining grace. Grace is the undeserved. It is the unconditional. It is the unabridged. And it is the unmerited, free, loving kindness of God. Do you got that? That's what grace is. The undeserved. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. The unconditional. That means no matter what. The unabridged. That means complete, whole, full. Not partial. Not a segment. Full, complete grace of God. The unwavering. The unending the unmerited, you did nothing to deserve this grace. Isn't that beautiful? And it's by that grace, that grace, that you and I are saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath that is to come? We're saved from the penalty of death? We're saved from our sins? We're saved from ourselves, friends. Look, I might be a crazy man off the wagon, off the chain, if it wasn't for this grace. 
You don't know where you would be either, right? I'm just being real enough to get out on the limb. Don't saw me off now. I'm just telling you, if it weren't for this grace, who in the world knows where I would be? Because I've always had passion in life. I've always been passionate about something. I don't even want to know where I would be without God's grace. And it's by this grace that we've been saved from our sins. We've been saved from ourselves. And how did this happen? How does this happen? The scripture says it's by faith. It's by faith. Faith in what? Faith in the finished work of the cross. Faith that his sacrifice worked. Faith in grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, the scripture says. The faith doesn't belong to you. You're not the originator of this faith. God gave that to you as a gift. We're saved by his faith. We're saved by his grace. That's a gift of God. And salvation. Salvation is not of ourselves. Grace is not of ourselves. We came to the Father totally bankrupt. We had nothing to contribute. And God says, that's great, because that's something I can do something with. As long as you think you can contribute, you can bring stuff to me. And it happens this way, not on the inside to coming into grace, but once we're already there, people still believe that rhetoric. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It says, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And then it says, for we are God's handiwork. I love that. Doesn't that begin to get out a canvas and a paintbrush? We're God's handiwork. That he thought this thing through. One version says we are God's workmanship. I like that one too. One version says we are God's masterpiece. Isn't that awesome? That means it's the piece above all pieces. He put it together a lot of pieces when he put together this earth, didn't he? But he says, you, you are my masterpiece. We're not some sort of pawn in the kingdom of God. Masterpiece. One version says creation there. For we are his creation created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has before ordained or which God planned in advance for us to do. Now, see, this is where we get hung up now because we focus on that verse 10 there where it says, for we're his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared for us to do. Is that what it says? That's exactly what it says. Now, friends, listen to me very carefully here, okay? Because this will help you. The good works he's talking about here is our response to grace, not our requirement to grace. You see... <laughs> There was nothing on my marriage certificate that says you are required to be good to Valerie. Come on. <laughs> but, but my response, because I love her and I care about her and she's mine. My response is good works. My response is to be good to Valerie. 
that and all those knives on the counter will keep you in line, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I couldn't help but say that my mind went to all those Cutco knives on the counter. Come on now. Not Costco, but Cutco, right? Good works is a response. Isn't that simple now when you think about, oh, this is my response. I means as I go, I just respond. Like ways of Christ, I'm good to people. I'm gracious to people. I'm kind. I'm loving. I'm considerate. I'm prayerful. I had a guy that uh, at my work, when I was coming back from lunch on Friday, I walked by his cube and I said, hi. And he said, can you stop a second? I said, yes. He was looking at his phone. He was looking at a picture of his sister. He said, I just got word. My sister died. He said, Mark, can you pray for me right now? Can you pray for my family? I said, absolutely. And I stepped into his cube and I began to pray for him. And he took his hat off as I was praying. When I opened my eyes, he was just sobbing. Friends, we're saved unto good works. Grace was the response in his situation. I was not required to do that. It was my response. And so we have preached this. See, God says you better be out there working for him. Come on. I preached it that way years ago. But that is not what the scripture says. That is not the heartbeat of that scripture right there. We're saved unto good works. It is our response. Isn't that easy? Not our requirement. Look, if I were to give you the gift of a brand new automobile, think about it one time. Get your favorite one in mind there. What you got? Jaguar? What do you got there? Mercedes-Benz? What do you got there? BMW? How come you're picking all these expensive ones? But imagine, <laughs> imagine that I was to give you a brand new car. And I just said, it is a gift to you. And then before I walked away, I said something like this. By the way, you're required to wash that car and wax that car once a week. I'd be out of place, wouldn't I? The gift part is fine. But for me to put a requirement upon you, that is out of place. And God is not requiring us to do anything. He's just saying, look, this is going to be your response. The more this legalism gets off you, the freer you will be, the bolder you will be. Come on now. The bolder you will get. Not B-O-U-L-D-E-R, okay? <laughs> We're getting rocks out of the way. Bolder, B-O-L-D-E-R. The bolder, the more assured, the more confident you will become. It takes a while. It's a slow drip, friends. But I'm telling you, it will displace all that nonsense that we've been carrying. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time, look at this, you were separate from Christ. There was a tribe of people at one time that was separate from Christ. They had no covenant with Christ. Separate from God, not just Christ, but separate from God. You were separate from Christ. And it says excluded from citizenship in Israel. I don't like to be excluded, to be honest with you. Excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners, look at there, to the covenants of the promise, the promise to Abraham, the promise to David, we were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, 
Look at these words, without hope and without God in the world. What a dark place to be. How many of you have walked down a road where you just couldn't find hope? I mean, hope seemed to be five steps in front of you. And you ran all night long to catch up with hope, but hope just kept outpacing you. What a dark place to live when there's no hope. But you've got to ask yourself the question, what got you to that point? How could you get to the point in Christ where you have no hope? I can understand that from an unbeliever, but in Christ, how would you get there? Because you don't have an understanding of God's free, loving kindness. God's true grace. Without hope, and without God in the world. In other words, at one time, the Gentiles were in one group, and the Jews were in another group. The sacred veil, the dividing wall of hostility, was the barrier that kept us from having a relationship with God simply because we were born a Gentile at that time. One could say, well, come on now, Mark. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. I had nothing to do with my birth. And that is the point that I was trying to make in the scriptures. I just read. You had nothing to do with your birth. You responded to the invitation. You responded from the faith that he had put into your heart. You responded to that. And then you were birthed into daddy's family. We had nothing to do with our birth into God's family. It was the gift of God's free, loving kindness. And we received this new birth by grace through faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross. That's how it happened. Grace, come on. The Father's free, loving kindness walked us down a wedding aisle to meet his son, our heavenly groom. Can you see that picture? I have no problem with that whatsoever. It was there. It was at that moment. It was at that altar that the sacred veil was lifted and the bride was kissed with eternal life. Do you see it? Isn't it beautiful? Is that a ceremony that you would like to attend? Of course. That's what happened to you and me, us and we. That's what happened to us when we came to Christ. Daddy grabbed a hold of our arm and he walked us down a wedding aisle while his son stared through that veil and saw us as the way we were and said, yes, Daddy, that's my bride. And there came a point in time that he would lift that veil and kiss his bride with abundant life, eternal life. The barrier, the dividing wall of hostility at that moment was destroyed. And we were brought into the rest. Into the rest. Come on. Into the rest of Christ. Isn't that awesome? You know, I'm just at rest. There's a million things on my mind. There's a million things on my dashboard. There's a thousand things on my to-do list. But I'm still at rest. 
I'll get to them when I get to them. But I know one thing for sure, I'm as secure in Him as I'm ever going to be. And if I quit coming to church tomorrow and just focused on my lists, all those lists that never end, the daddy's going to love me just as much as he loved me in the building as he does at home, wherever I'm at, right? When you get that revelation in your heart, it just, it just sets you free, friends. It lifts you. It really does. The only thing that I am not in love with about the church is that she veils the bride with legalism. She puts a veil over the bride. She screens the bride in through commandments and rule keeping and the traditions of men. Why does the church do this? Come on, that's a simple question. Why would the church do something like that? Because it's her attempt to keep the bride pure and holy and unblemished. Keep the bride spotless. They feel like they have some sort of responsibility to keep you spotless, to keep you pure, to keep you holy. They don't have that responsibility and neither do you. See, if you haven't been taught this from a child, this is going to sound foreign. It's going to sound foreign. I was telling my aunt last night, I said, years ago, a friend of mine, I was over at their house and they had a minor bird. And that minor bird really knew how to say a lot of stuff. You know, it had some years on it, right? It learned a lot of things over the years. And every once in a while, you'd hear this loud, and it was terribly annoying, very high pitch. And I listened to that a few times and finally had asked the question, why does your bird do that? What's going on with your bird? She said, oh, don't bother about that. She said, you know, one time years ago, we had an oven. When you opened up the oven, it made that noise. And that we had that oven for so long, she, she said that bird learned that, mimicked that. And I said to my aunt last night, I said, you know, that's amazing. I've heard about taking the bird out of the oven, but you can't take the oven out of the bird. You see how that, you see how that works? That's what I said to my Aunt Mary last night. And that's the situation that we have is God has drawn us out of the darkness. God has drawn us out of the legalism. Yet the legalism still remains because that's what we got used to. That's what we were familiar with. And so our default is always to keep going back to that which we're familiar with. Friends, I'm encouraging you to just really flush the hydrant, would you, of your mind. Just let it open and let it go. Just allow this word of God God's unconditional love, God's unwavering love, God's unending love, God's unmerited love to just cascade over your heart and flush out all those talking birds. Amen? Come on. <laughs> it's true. And hear my heart, really. I have trouble with the churches. She wants to continually veil the bride in legalism because she thinks somehow the bride is not going to be as pure and holy and spotless. God forbid that the bride's dress gets stained, gets dirty on her wedding day, right? Legalism walls and fences the bride in with legalistic calisthenics. How many of you remember calisthenics from gym class? You remember those? That's exactly what legalism does. It walls her in with legalistic calisthenics. I'm talking about gymnastics. I'm talking about exercises to achieve bodily fitness and grace of movement. That's the definition for calisthenics. 
bodily fitness and just grace of movement. And we can get you there if you'll just follow us and follow these 10 steps or whatever it may be, 12 steps to a better this and that. You've heard it, haven't you? I have. Why does the church do this? Very simple. I mean, the common answer would be because she doesn't know any better. She's been indoctrinated to believe a certain way. But at the same time, she doesn't trust the Holy Spirit to speak to you. She doesn't trust the Holy Spirit to be your comforter and guide. She doesn't trust the Holy Spirit to be your protector. Therefore, she takes the responsibility. Friends, listen, when I'm preaching this morning, I'm preaching about an area of my life that I've lived. I didn't get this from anybody else. I lived this at one time. I would yank the slack out of you in a loving way as quickly as I could if I saw something about you that I just thought would make you impure, unholy, or whatever it may be. I just would come and say, come here, brother, let me talk to you. God, forgive them, those crazy nonsense things I used to do. I lost a lot of friends. I've told you that before. Here and there, they would come and go. And uh, it was just simply because they weren't ready for that. And I wasn't using grace back then. I was using the law. I was misinterpreting the scriptures and I was using it the way I had been taught. Kind of like that bird, right? They don't trust the Holy Spirit to be your protector, your peace, and your provider and all the things that would go with it. In short, legalism attempts to build its own tower to heaven. I want you to take a look at this tower one time. This is what legalism tries to do, okay? <laughs> guys familiar with that tower? Sure you are. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, we find these words. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, watch all these pronouns now, you ready? They said to each other, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come let us. You see a problem going on here, friends? Where's God at? They said, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we <laughs> may make a name for ourselves. Did I just about wear you out there? If not, there's one more. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Do you see how self-centered and how prideful these Babylonians were? It was all about them. It was all about them. Legalism does the very same thing, making it more about them than about Him. Legalism wants to build her own tower. She wants to establish her own city. She wants to make a name for herself. And who was it that ordered the building of the Tower of Babel? I don't know if there's anybody in here who could tell me who that was, but there was somebody that ordered the building of the Tower of Babel. It was Nimrod, the emperor of Shinar. You see, Nimrod would have been very familiar with the story of the worldwide flood that destroyed the earth. You want to know why? It's because Nimrod was Noah's great-grandson. It was Nimrod. Nimrod's daddy was Cush. Cush's daddy was Ham. Ham, the son of Noah. Do you see how that works? So Nimrod would have been familiar 
with the story of the worldwide flood that destroyed the earth? I was just trying to reimagine this. I wonder how many times as a little guy, uh, as he was growing up, that Nimrod would have sat on his granddaddy Ham's lap and quietly listened as Ham brought to life his own personal encounter on the ark. I wonder how many times that might have happened. But how many of you know that Ham must have left out some important details? Come on. Come on. <laughs> how do you know? By Nimrod's response. Ham must have left out some important details along the storyline, like why God destroyed the earth. <laughs> how do we know that he left these details out? Because as Nimrod grew, he was determined to build his own ark of salvation. Not in the form of a boat, but in the form of a tower. Same thing. The historian Josephus tells us why Nimrod ordered the construction of the Tower of Babel. It was to create a structure that was tall enough to withstand another worldwide flood. Nimrod appeared to have either forgotten the purpose of the flood or perhaps his grandfather left that part out of the story, his grandfather Ham. God sent the flood because the earth was filled with violence. The earth was filled with wickedness and depravity. The earth was continuously evil. I mean, just every way you turn, just continuously, every beat of the clock, just evil abounded. But how many of you know he won't do that again? He's not going to destroy the earth again. He's put us here as ambassadors. Ambassadors are here to represent their government. We're not here to give our own opinions. We're here to tell you about what Jesus said and interpret it through the finished work of grace. So the earth was continuously evil. And here's this guy named Nimrod trying to build this tower into the heavens. And that's what legalism tries to do on a daily basis, build its own tower into the heavens. You know how they do that? They find someone that's not as good as they are, that's not failing as often as they are, and they go, I'm better than you. My tower is going up. My tower is going up. Isn't this so foolish? Isn't that dumb? You know how dumb that is? That's about as dumb as trying to buy a license to hunt alligators in Alaska. <laughs> just just foolish. Yet this is the way people do it. They don't see the truth. How many of you have heard of the old adage, don't be such a Nimrod? You ever heard that? You ever said that? Oh, you're such a Nimrod? Turns out that's biblical. You didn't know that, did you? That's biblical because Nimrods do foolish things. They do dumb things. And here's this man who's trying to build his own way. He's trying to pave his own path to heaven. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other 
So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. That's how they pronounce it in the Hebrew, Babel. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, the Hebrew word Babel literally translates as confusion. Babylonian, Babel, Tower of Babel, confusion. That's what it means. And there's another word that's akin to this word. It's called Baleel. And it translates as mixture. They both come from the same root word. You see how close they are to spelling? Therefore, Babel, I'm telling you, right in your own Greek concordance, you'll find it. Babel translates as confusion by mixture. And friends, that is exactly what happens to the human soul when it's exposed to legalism and instructed to build its own tower. Confusion is what happens when we mix the old covenant with the new covenant. Confusion takes place when we believe that we are the sum total of our own workmanship, our own handiwork, our own masterpiece, our own creation. Confusion is the result when man embraces 613 veils and one cross. Did you catch what I was getting at right there? You embrace 613 veils and one cross. And you know what you have? Confusion by mixture. The 613 veils, also known as the law. There were 613 Jewish laws. 365 don'ts, 248, you better do, right? Okay. We've got 248 and 365. That's 613. You wouldn't like to live under that law. Because coming to church today would have been work. And you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. So you'd be breaking the Sabbath. And if you break one law, you're guilty of breaking them all, right? So there's so many complications to the law. But this is what happens when we mix the laws with this gospel of grace. Freedom, friends, is manifested in fullness when we come to the reality, we come to that surrender moment that, Daddy, it's okay to unzip the veil. I know I'm carrying some stuff. It's okay to unzip the veil. Let me ask you a question. Why did God confuse the language? Why did he confound the language of the Babylonians, the ones that were building the Tower of Babel? Why would God do something like that? Because in the building of the tower that reached into the heavens, they weren't actually getting closer to God. Conversely, they were getting further away. How? Because it required no faith to build, but it requires faith to believe. See how that works? And what God is interested in is our heart where believing comes out of. Any man can grab a tool and start working. You know, i got a big toolbox at home. I go to it all the time. I, I don't think I've ever once on the way to that toolbox went, I, I have the faith 
to believe that I'm going to find that tool and I'm going to be able to do that job. I don't think I believe like, I don't think like that, right? But it requires faith to believe, not to just to build, right? How many of you have heard of a man by the name of Charles Osborne? He worked on a farm, and he was working one day to hang a 350-pound pig for slaughter. And as he was grunting and picking that thing up and whatnot, as you know as it would go, there was a blood vessel that burst, a very tiny one in Charlie's brain. Now, it wasn't enough to give him a stroke or put him in the hospital or anything like that, but it just happened to be the blood vessel that inhibited the hiccups response. Charles Osborne, he holds the world's Guinness Book of Records for the person who has hiccuped nonstop for the longest period of time. Charlie hiccuped continuously from 1922 to 1990. <laughs> it is estimated that he had hiccuped more than 430 million times. Charlie's hiccups would subside just a few months before he died. Charlie was interviewed one time by a reporter and they said, tell us about your experience, Charlie. And he said, he said, I'd give all I have to get rid of these hiccups. He said, I get so sore jerking all the time. For 68 years, Charlie Osborne could find no rest. Why? Because his hiccups were a reminder. His hiccups were a barrier to his own rest. You say, Pastor Mark, boy, that's an interesting story, but what is your point? <laughs> My point is this. Many believers live their entire lives jerking all the time, jerking to the attention of the old covenant commandments serving God as a requirement rather than a response. They live their lives jerking in fear that somehow they've committed the unpardonable sin, which is impossible. If you are a believer, you cannot commit the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is to reject grace, the undeserved, unconditional, unabridged, unwavering, loving kindness of God. Without grace, there is no salvation. Remember, for by grace are you saved through faith. Many believers have never lifted the sacred veil because they have been taught to conceal themselves with legalistic behavior. They have walked around the revelation and really just the true meaning of this gospel of grace and I know they've meant well, but they've still walked around it. They have lived their lives zipped behind the veil of legalism, never seen through the eyes of the finished work of grace. Many believers never find the rest that Jesus spoke about when he said, come on, he said, are you tired? <laughs> Worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me, 
Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. I'll show you how to get rid of your 68-year bout with your diaphragm spasms of legalism as a means to please me. I'll show you how to stop that nonsense. He said, come on, work with me. Come on, walk with me. Watch how I do it. I love these words. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. He said, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and I'll show you how to live freely and lightly. I'll show you how to walk around without all these weights on you. (laughs) Friends, as annoying as both hiccups and legalism can be, many still suffer needlessly. They fail more than 430 million times, but they keep running to Dr. Law rather than to Dr. Grace. They erect walls and fences and screens that create barriers in their lives. They build their own towers. They veil themselves in legalism. I'm talking about the barriers that inhibit their ability to see through the eyes of grace. Barriers that affect that part of their brain that cannot turn off the legalistic hiccups. Barriers that keep them sore because they're jerking all the time. They're afraid of everything and they're moving and jerking and feeling condemned and snotting and snorting all the time. I want to ask you a question. Why would anyone want to wait until they're just a few steps, just a few days perhaps, in front of death's door to let go of their legalistic ways? Why would you want to do that? How does this happen, you ask? It happens because like a baby with a pacifier and like a toddler with a trike and like a teenager with a smartphone and like an adult with church doctrine, these believers refuse to discard the sacred veil of the law. That's how it happens, friends. So simple. I've held on to the law too long, they exclaim. I've relied on the legalistic old covenant since I've been a believer. This is all I've ever known. I can't start over now. Yes, you can, and yes, you should. I did it. Valerie did it. You're doing it. It's never too late. I was happy to throw it all away, friends. The way I prayed got thrown in the dumpster. The way I sang went in the dumpster. The way I preached, dumpster. And I thought, wow, this is a fresh start, Daddy. You've got a blank canvas now. Oh, Daddy, work this in me so that it's my response to work it out through the eyes of grace and the mouthpiece of grace. So that's how it happens. I've held on to the law too long. That's one of their statements. I've relied on the legalistic old covenant since I've been a child. I can't start over now. I would encourage you to rip that screen right out of your purview. I really would. Just get it off your horizon, friends. It's not worth having. 
Friends, screens may keep bugs out, but they don't keep burglars out. Screens may keep insects from coming in, but they don't keep intruders from coming in. And that's what Jesus was getting at when he said, the thief cometh not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. But he said, but I've come, come on, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. So this was not just a warning and no defense mechanism. Jesus said, I'm telling you why the thief comes. He comes to steal and to kill and destroy. But he said, I have come that you might have life and you might have life more abundantly. You see, Pastor Mark, when Jesus spoke about the thief, he was talking about the devil, right? Is that right? He was talking about the devil, right? (laughs) Not exclusively. You see, a thief is anything or anyone that steals from you, right? That's a thief. The government can be a thief. Your neighbor can be a thief. The jail is full of thieves. The court system is packed waiting for thieves to come before the judge. There's a lot of thieves, friends. And one of the biggest thieves I know of is legalism. It steals, it kills, it destroys. Not your spirit, man, but your soul, your body, your mind. Legalism is a thief. It steals your confidence. It steals your joy. It will steal your peace. It will steal your rest. It will steal your hope. It will steal all the dreams that you've planned. But Jesus said that in him we find abundant life. Now I'm going to say something here. Religious people might not like this, but abundant life and eternal life are similar. The life part is the same, but the abundant and the eternal are different, okay? Eternal life is the life of Christ without end. That's eternal life, okay? Abundant life is the life of Christ that we get to live here and now even in the midst of our circumstances, even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of conditions that are not so savory, right? Even conditions that are unpleasant. Abundant life is the life that overflows, come on, from the eternal life. This is where it comes out of. It comes out of the eternal life that we have and into our natural, the natural part about us, the natural and emotional part about us. Abundant life is the life that flows from our being when we realize that daddy holds nothing against us. Abundant life is not under the supervision of the law. Abundant life is grace. And it's things like faith and glory and love and hope and the fullness of joy in this life, not just in the life to come. And it's regardless of our performance. It's regardless of our behavior. I encourage you to behave well when you go out there. But abundant life is still yours. But the church has somehow believed into the lies that it's my legalism that produces my abundant life. No, it's the abundant life that gets rid of the legalism. Let go of it. It's just a teddy bear. You've outgrown the teddy bear, okay? There are people who say, Mark, I see that in the scriptures. I want this abundant life. I really do. I want it flowing in my life. How do I apprehend it? Same way you got salvation. By grace through faith. No more. Faith in what? Faith in who? Faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. Faith in the gift that comes through the undeserved, unconditional, unmerited, 
unending, unwavering, unabridged, free, loving kindness of God, friends. Well, then how does that abundant life become a greater reality in my life? You say, I've got it, right? That's right. How does it become a greater reality? How can I awaken this abundant life so I feel like I'm living the abundant life? How does that happen? By embracing grace and forsaking legalism. You've already got it. You embrace grace and you forsake the legalism. Period. Now again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12 again. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his handiwork, we are his workmanship, we are his masterpiece, we are his centerpiece, we are his bride, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God hath before ordained, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Next scriptures. Therefore, Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Do you remember a time like that? I do. You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Now, that's where we were earlier. Now, let's just continue. Verses 13 through 16. Here we go. <laughs> I love this. But, how many of you love but? I love but. When I come through that right there, I know but is the eraser. Come on. It just erased all of that foreigner stuff. Aliens, without God, without hope in this world. The but is the eraser, friends. It's the brand new start. <laughs> but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups that's the Jew and that's the Gentile he has made the two groups one look at that look at these words and has destroyed come on it doesn't get any worse than destroyed, friends. He didn't just snap it. He didn't just break it. He destroyed it. He didn't just throw it away so somebody could dig it out of the trash. No, he destroyed. What did he destroy? What did he destroy? The barrier. Look at that. The dividing wall, the fence, the screen, the sacred veil, the dividing wall of hostility. How did God destroy the barrier that kept us from being saved by grace through faith? How did he do that? Well, he tells you right here, by setting aside in his flesh, not yours, but his flesh, the law. Come on, underscore those words in your heart. This is so awesome. He set aside in his flesh, what? The law, because he knew that was the barrier. Is it on the screen? I got those words out of the Bible. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. That's what allowed him to unite us. Not only the Jew and the Gentile together, but us to his father. He destroyed that barrier. 
the dividing wall of hostility. Next scriptures. His purpose was to create in himself, not just you, but in himself, one new humanity out of the two. I love these words, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Friends, the veils, the screens, the walls and the fences have been destroyed through Jesus' body. That's what it's telling us there. We are at peace with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. Not blue cross, and not red cross, not crisscross, but Jesus' blood-stained body on the cross. We are not saved by the ten that were chiseled into stone, but we are saved by the one that was nailed to the cross. The sacred veil that once covered Israel through the law has been taken away. Listen to me carefully. There's nothing left behind the veil. The pride is not behind that veil anymore. There's, listen to those words, there's nothing left behind the veil. Nothing. You know, I search. I got that male pattern blindness sometimes, right? When I go to the refrigerator. How many of you guys can identify with me? I hope there's somebody else in here. I hear the ladies laughing, so it must be true. I mean, I can look that refrigerator over, I mean, for 10 minutes. And I say, honey, the ketchup is not here. The mustard's not here. The salad dressing's not here. She said, yes, it's there. I said, no, honey. I've looked at them one by one by one, counted them like little duckies in a row. I've looked at them all. I didn't just glance. I looked at them all. It's not here. And she just walks over and just picks it right out. I feel about that high. There are no words in those moments, is there? <laughs> but friends... <laughs> Jesus took it a step further, you know. He said, look, I, I know it's there, but you can't see it. No, it's not there anymore. It's not behind the veil anymore. It's been taken away. It is not there. There's nothing there for us. In fact, there never was for the Gentile. But even for the Jew to this day, there is nothing there behind their old veil. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, we find these words from the message paraphrase. Look at these words. Does it sound like we're patting ourselves on the back, insisting on our own credentials, asserting our authority? Well, we're not. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing, right? Neither do we need letters of endorsement either to you or from you. And see, this is how it happens. When you know who you are in Christ, you don't need letters of endorsement. You don't need another person to praise you. And you certainly don't need to praise yourself, friends. We don't need these kind of letters anymore. You yourselves are all the endorsement we need. Why? Because grace is flowing from you. Love is flowing from you. Kindness is flowing from you. Your very lives are a letter that anyone can read just by looking at you. Isn't that funny? Isn't that awesome? They just look at you and they go, wow. 
I had a guy do that one time. I was delivering product at like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, way down in Illinois somewhere when I worked as a truck driver. And I was delivering product. It was in a Road Ranger. And there was some guy on the other side of the store. And, uh, you know, I didn't know him. He didn't know me. And he finally came walking over to me. He looked like he was a monkey. He was walking like this, you know. And uh, he came up to me and he said, I, I just looked at him. I said, how you doing, sir? He said, good. He said, I'll bet you're one of those believers, aren't you? I said, yeah, how did you know? He said, I could tell by the look on your face. I just went, what? Man, I celebrated the whole day. That's what these scriptures are saying. They know it by looking at you. There's something that we carry. I don't know. Maybe we've gotten so used to each other that we don't see it perhaps. I don't know. But they see it on your face. They see it in your countenance. They hear it through your words. They feel it through your expressions that reach out and touch them and hold them and are good to them with. They can tell just by looking at you. Next scriptures. Christ himself wrote it, not with ink, but with God's living spirit. Look at these words now. Not chiseled into stone. What was the only thing that was chiseled into stone? Come on. It was the law. It was the Ten Commandments. He said, this is not how it happened. Through the chiseling into stone. He said, but carved into human lives and we publish it. We establish it based on that right there. We couldn't be more sure of ourselves in this that you written by Christ himself for God, are our letter of recommendation. Next scripture. We wouldn't think of writing this kind of letter about ourselves. That's right, because grace doesn't boast. Remember that? It has no need to boast. Grace helps you understand who you are in Christ. We wouldn't think of writing this kind of letter about ourselves. Only God can write such a letter. His letter authorizes us to help carry out this new plan of action. This plan wasn't written out with ink on paper, with pages and pages of legal footnotes killing your spirit. You get the flavor of Eugene Peterson as he's writing this, just kind of comical, but yeah, I get you, Eugene. It's right down to earth where I live, those footnote killers. He says, it's written with spirit on spirit all the middlemen are taken out of the way nobody else gets a cut it's spirit upon spirit it's god upon you individually not just corporately spirit on spirit his life on our lives he says the government of death its constitution chiseled on stone tablets look at these words now had a dazzling inaugural that is just awesome language in other words, at one time, a big party was thrown. This was the greatest thing that has ever come along. It had a dazzling. It had a brass band over there in the corner. It had the VIP lanyards that you needed to walk in. It was a dazzling inaugural. He says, Moses' face, as he delivered the tablets, the stone tablets, the law, was so bright that day even though it would fade away soon enough, that the people of Israel could no more look right at him than to stare into the sun. How many of you have ever tried to do that? You can only take so much of that and it just burns your retinas right out of your head. 
And he says, how much more dazzling, how much more dazzling than the government of living spirit. If the government of condemnation was impressive, and it was because they had nothing to compare it with. If the government, or they had Egypt to compare it with, more so. If the government of condemnation was impressive, how about this government of affirmation? Do you want condemnation or do you want affirmation, right? Bright as the old government was, I love these words, it would look downright dull alongside the new one. Let me stop here for a second. When I was reading this last night, I thought, this just fits right here again. On December 13th of 1994, twin boys were born to me. I named one Tanner Jordan and one Taylor Jacob. And everything was just bright. Tanner was six pounds, nine ounces. Taylor was six pounds, seven ounces. Now I want you to do the math real quick here. That's 13 pounds exactly a baby, isn't it? Everything looked great. What a proud daddy I was with those twin boys. Oh, so beautiful. I loved them. First sight. And then the next morning, the nurse happened to lay the two babies side by side. And she noticed that Tanner was real pink colored. But Taylor was dusky gray. And she said, this is not right. Called the doctor, the test began. It's a long story. And after all the testing, they determined that Taylor had a hypoplastic right ventricle, a transposition of the great arteries, and many more very complicated things going on with his heart. Congenital heart problems, they call it. Congenital heart issues. And they said, look, there's no way for this baby to survive without surgery. This was about eight months, by the way, before I got saved. So I was still an unbeliever. They said, there's no way for this baby to survive without surgery. They said, he'll need three surgeries. One right now, one when he's seven or eight months old, and one when he's about two. It's called the Norwood procedure. It was developed about 14 years ago, he said. He said, babies born prior to this 14 years ago, there was no chance for them. I said, let's do it. And I said, doctor, I said, I said, after that first surgery, I said, how will we need to know when we need to do the second surgery? Oh, he said, you'll know. He said, because if you lay those twins side by side, one will be nice and rosy pink and the other one will start to turn a little dusky gray. <laughs> Can't you see, friends? That's the covenant. And that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at right here when he said, if the government of condemnation was impressive, in other words, you had nothing else to compare it to, nothing else to look at next to it. He said, how about the government of affirmation? So let's lay those babies side by side for a moment. Guess what you'll discover? That the one looks downright dull alongside the new one. I was thinking yesterday, boy, that was just a lot of baby to carry. Six pounds, nine ounces, six pounds, seven ounces. That's 13 pounds of baby. 
And I couldn't help but hear the Holy Spirit and say, you know what? People are still carrying babies like that. But they're not just 13 pounds. They're 613 pounds. They're carrying the weight of the law. And it doesn't come out healthy. Continuing in the scriptures, the Apostle Paul says these words. He said, if that makeshift arrangement impressed us, how much more this brightly shining government installed, I love that, installed for eternity, with that kind of hope to excite us, nothing holds us back. Unlike Moses, we have nothing to hide Everything is out in the open with us. Now look at these words. It says, he wore a veil. Who wore the veil? Moses wore the veil. He wore the veil. It says he wore a veil so the children of Israel wouldn't notice that the glory was fading away and they didn't notice. They didn't notice it then and they don't notice it now. Don't notice that there's nothing, I told you, nothing left behind the veil. Even today, when the proclamations of that old bankrupt government are read out, that means when the people today stand in churches, behind lecterns, behind pulpits, wherever they're at, on street corners, on your soapbox, wherever you're at, they said, but when that government when that old bankrupt government is read out, they still can't see through it because that's how they've been conditioned, like that bird I was telling you about. Oh, look at these words. Only Christ can get rid of the veil. You see that? Only Christ can get rid of the veil. You can't get rid of it. No one can strip it away from you. Only Christ can get rid of the veil so that they can see for themselves that there's nothing there. Nothing there. Next scriptures. Whenever though they turn to face God as Moses did, God removes the veil. And there they are. Face to face. I can see my daddy. My daddy can see me. We're having a good time enjoying each other. Next scriptures. They suddenly recognize that God is a living personal presence. You see, that's a revelation, isn't it? Like when we came into Christ, we discovered that he's a living relationship. He's a personal relationship. He's a personal, very tangible presence. They recognize that God is a living personal presence, not a piece of chiseled stone. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legalism, <laughs> it says legislation, but that old constricting legalism is recognized as obsolete. Come on, friends. Obsolete. I love you. It's an exclamation point because he says we're free of it. What's it? The government of condemnation? The ministry of death? That's what the government of condemnation is? We're free of it. What? Legalism? Who? All of us, it says. Nothing between us and God. Our faces shining 
with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter. I told you it's a slow drip. It's a gradual, you become brighter and brighter and brighter. Our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. The main thing that I extracted in my own heart as I read those scriptures, because there's so much there, is that there's nothing behind the sacred veil of the Old Covenant. That's the Apostle Paul's point. There's nothing there. Why do you keep going back? There's nothing there! It's downright dull compared to the New Covenant of Grace. Friends, the only way a man can read through these scriptures and still not see that the Old Covenant, with all of its legalism, was made obsolete is because that man refuses to let go of the government of death, the government of condemnation, and the government of legalism. Old Covenant legalism is downright dull alongside the New Covenant of Grace. There is no more striving to please the Father. We are not saved by anything that we've done. The scriptures tell us it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. We are saved by the undeserved, unconditional, unabridged, and unmerited, free, loving kindness of God. Isn't that great news? We enter into Jesus by a new and living way we come through the veil, which is his body. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, we find these words. Look at what the writer said. He said, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, didn't that tell you this grace gives you confidence? Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil. That uh, Greek word, by the way, veil right there in the New Testament is the word kata petesima. Kata petesima. Do you know what it says in the Greek concordance? It says the door screen to the most holy place. And that's how we came in. But it wasn't a tabernacle built with human hands. It was the tabernacle built in heaven. Christ himself. He says, it's his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean. They're not dirty anymore. You will never, ever have a dirty heart, a distant heart. You are up close, clean, and personal in front of God. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, a conscience that tries to condemn you all the time and you side with it. A conscience that says you're guilty and you say, I know. That's an evil conscience almost. And it says, we're clean from that evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The same water that flowed from Christ's side. The same blood that came from his side. My closing thoughts in scriptures are found in Mark chapter 15. Verses 25 to 39. This is the story of the crucifixion. 
It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you, you <laughs> who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, that's a greater feat than the Tower of Babel. What are you talking about? They said, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on Jesus. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three o'clock in the afternoon. Three o'clock in the afternoon means Jesus has been hanging on the cross from 9 a.m. till three. That's six hours. That's the number for man. Who is he doing this for? He's doing it for us. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi! Eloi! Lama Sabachthani! Which means, my God! My God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen. He's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone, they said. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And then it says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last breath. Look at the next scripture. The veil at death, friends. You see this? I couldn't have made this fit if I would have took a pair of scissors and cut out verses and just pasted them over other ones. It says here, he breathed his last breath. He exhaled the old covenant is what he did. And it says here, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, signifying that God did this. Man didn't do this. Man would have tore it from the bottom up, but God tore it. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. 
Friends, when you reach the point where you're willing to tear the veil of the Old Covenant theology in two, then Jesus will be revealed. There's a difference between the law of legalism and the law of liberty. There's a difference between rules and relationship. There's a difference between performance and position. There's a difference between servant and son. And there's a difference between Moses and Jesus. You want to know what the difference is? Moses wore the sacred veil. Jesus tore the sacred veil. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Unzipping the veil of legalism, seeing through the eyes of grace, is where my journey began into this new covenant message. Legalism and indoctrination had installed many sacred screens over my eyes, screens that made it difficult, made it almost impossible to see my father and my groom Jesus in all of their beauty, in all of their loveliness. Legalism dug holes and erected walls and fences. It created barriers in my walk. Legalism had clothed me with a bridal veil that had concealed my true identity. These barriers may have kept out the bugs, but they let in the burglars. Those screens strained out the gnat, but let the camel pass through. The screens of legalism may have stopped the insect, but they had no power to stop the intruder. The intruder of the soul, which comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus would come along, and he would tell us that he had come. He had come to give us life, and to give us life more abundantly. A life that can be lived here and now. And a life that is free of guilt and shame and fear and condemnation. And a life without end. And a life that cannot be lost. In my journey to find a peace that would not ebb and flow, come and go, I would stumble upon the Apostle Paul's words to the Ephesians. But this time, I would see through the eyes of grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Through the finished work of grace, I would discover that our good works are a response of His grace and not a requirement. But most of all, I would be unveiled to the grace and truth that we are saved by God's undeserved, unconditional, unabridged, and unmerited, free, loving kindness. <laughs> Friends, I want to put us in remembrance of what Charles Osborne, the man who had hiccuped for 68 years, told the reporter. Charlie said, I'd give all I have to get rid of these hiccups. I get so sore, jerking all the time. Well, 
It's too late for us to give it all. Jesus already gave it all on our behalf. Therefore, he bids us with these words. Are you tired? Worn out? <laughs> burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. I'll show you how to get rid of your 68-year bout with the diaphragm spasms of legalism. Work with me. Come on. Walk with me. It's going to be fun. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. And you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. Friends, there's a lesson that we can learn from that barbaric centurion. The one that stood, I'm talking about, at the base of Christ's cross. When the centurion saw how Jesus died, that's what the scripture says. When the centurion saw how Jesus died, the centurion said, surely this man was the Son of God. How did he get that revelation? Jesus died the same death as the two rebels. So why would this centurion say such a thing? Was it the earthquake that took place? Was it the darkness that came over the land? Don't know. Was it the 500 people that came out of their graves? Or had word reached him that the veil had been torn? Or was it Jesus' last words from the cross that got him? It is finished! Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Friends, Moses wore the sacred veil and it released legalism. Jesus tore the sacred veil and it gave us abundant life. Father, I thank you so much. We need to hear this. We need to hear this, Daddy, because there are so many people that are so stuck. They're at such an impasse. They don't know what to do. They feel like they've lost their hope. They feel like they're without God. Some feel like they've committed the unpardonable sin. They've not heard this message that it's Jesus plus nothing. They've not heard for, by grace, God's unmerited undeserved, irrational, unconditional, unwavering, unabridged love that you saved us and grace that you saved us. Saved us from the penalty of death. You saved us from ourselves. I thank you, Father, that we don't have to build our own tower of Babel. All it does is create confusion by mixture. 
We are out from underneath the old covenant. We are in the new covenant of grace. And by there, by there we find our rest. We can sit with you. We can walk with you. We can talk with you. We can watch how you can do it. We can learn the unforced rhythms of grace. We thank you, Father, that you never lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on us, but you delight in showering us with your grace, showering us with your blessing. I thank you, Father, that there is nothing left behind the old covenant veil. Jesus became our veil. He was pierced in his side. And I thank you, Father, even in his death, a death that was so barbaric, but yet so beautiful at the same time that he drew a centurion right at the last moment out from behind the veil. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.